for sustaining us this week, for providing all that you have. We thank you for your great kindness to us and for being a kind God. We thank you for the joy that you put in our hearts, not as the world gives, but only as you give. And Lord, we look to you today even for more filling, that we might be the people that you've called us to be. Thank you for Jeff's prayer just a moment ago and how fitting that is, Lord, that uh, we would be the people that glorify you. And so help us today, Lord, to examine our hearts, to see ourselves, where we are in your presence, and where we are under your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for this very simple but very powerful message that you delivered many thousands of years ago from a mountainside, how it penetrates our hearts even today. And may you do your work again. Prepare our hearts also, Father, at the conclusion of this message that we would be ready to partake in your holy table and that we would be prepared spiritually for just that. Now we thank you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so our series, we're going to continue on in the foundational truths from the Sermon on the Mount. And today I changed it just a little bit as far as what the title would be. Uh, You'll see how Jesus makes mention of the hungering and the thirsting. But I've changed this to happy are the starving and the dehydrated. Okay, the starving and the dehydrated. And we'll see where you fit and where I fit into this. So stand with me as we read the text this morning. I'm just going to pick up in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And then for today, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, I hope by now you've started figuring out that the Lord is giving us his manifesto on the kingdom. And in the midst of that, helping us to understand how we can be happy people. The way to true happiness. And that's something that everybody longs for. Is that not true? We all want to be happy people, right? Okay, if you don't, just say yes for the joy of those sitting around you. If you want to be miserable, that's fine. Just leave the rest of us out. If you would, okay? Because we want to be happy. And the Lord is telling us how to be happy. That's what he's doing. He's given us the formula here for happiness. And the world makes a mad scramble daily, all the time, minute by minute, to try to find happiness in all the wrong ways because happiness doesn't come from what we do. And I hope you'll underline these things in your mind because you'll see how challenging it is in this life to not be this way. But happiness does not come from what we do. It does not come from who we are. And I'm talking about in position in this life. Whether we're a CEO or we're the lowest on the rung, it doesn't matter. It doesn't come from that. It doesn't come from what we accomplish. Happiness comes, Jesus says, from one thing. One person, I should say. And that is from God. That's where happiness comes from. Now, I could close right there. And that would be sufficient. And uh, many people have said over the years, if you look at various writers, they'll say, Jesus' sermon probably was much longer, but these were summarized by Matthew and maybe even Luke into very short statements. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but we're going to take the Lord's words and we're going to elaborate on them because we need to know what he's talking about by being happy. We want to know what it means to be happy. And so to be clear, what we're talking about, happiness comes from the acceptance that we are broken that we are destitute spiritually, we are morally bankrupt. 
That's God's people. We understand our wickedness. And because we understand our wickedness, we mourn over that. We've spent time in these things, so I'm not going to go over this too much. I just want us to be clear on what Jesus is saying. And that mourning means to be sad to the point of making a change. And that's quite different from just being sad over something, right? Many times people are sad or troubled by something in their life, but they're not willing to make the change over it. You know, oftentimes people will say, oh, I wish I could just lose weight. And those of us in our minds say, well, we all can lose weight if what has to happen? There has to be some action from it, right? And I'd be the first to say, Lord, I want to lose weight, but please just don't make me give up the cookies. It just doesn't work that way. Right? So we are often sad about things, but not to the point of making a change. What Jesus is talking about is making a spiritual change, a spiritual change that makes us realize that God is everything and that we are nothing. Now, I hope you understand what I'm saying, we are nothing. I'm not demoralizing us. I'm not demeaning us. I'm measuring us in the light of God's holiness. So as we look at each other, we look pretty good to each other, right? Or we look better than each other in some cases. We look worse than each other in some cases. But we're not comparing ourselves to each other. We're comparing ourselves to God, who is holy and just and righteous. And so that's where we find ourselves the need for mourning, because we are just not that way. So the people who mourn are truly, Jesus says, God's people. And praise his name, they will be comforted. He's not going to leave us in that state of mourning over our sin. There's going to come a day where we will rejoice over what he's done. Paul Miller, some of you remember him. He wrote the book on a praying life. We did that a couple semesters on our Wednesday nights. Has some new material out, and one of those is about what he calls the J-curve. And so if you could just imagine a capital letter J, uh, it's the idea of we all go through life as God's people understanding that we are less and less valuable to ourselves in other words, we're broken, we realize that, but then we live a life daily of being resurrected. And so the resurrection power is what we're celebrating today through Jesus, but we're realizing that for God's people, we are dying to ourselves, this sinful nature daily, so that we can live in the resurrection power all the time. You realize a lot of times that's where happiness is lost, is that people just fail to realize that I need to live this way every single day understanding that I am nothing in the presence of the Lord. And through him is where we get our meaning and have this happiness that we're looking for. Okay? Now, just because a person recognizes their brokenness doesn't mean that life can't be good in a lot of ways, right? So we're not talking about going out the door and becoming like the Essenes of old and going living on the mountainside and in a hole somewhere, devoiding ourselves of everything that's pleasant. No, that's not what we're talking about. I mean, many people can enjoy life. Many people have money. They have things. They have uh, fame. They have uh, possessions, talents. Uh, they're nice people, kind people. All of that goes with this in life. People come from good families. But what we're talking about is we have nothing spiritually. We understand that in ourselves we have nothing to offer God without his grace doing everything in our lives to make us what we want to be. And also, people don't just say, okay, well, after I have my salvation, I'm good now. This is part B of what Jesus is telling us here in this verse. We don't ever get to the point where we say, okay, thank you, Lord, you've given me my ticket to heaven, and now I can just sit back and relax. But the people who are truly broken over their sin understand that Jesus has done it all, but they live daily in the light of the truth that he is still everything. And I need to be striving 
for his righteousness regularly. How many of you would say that you understand that in this daily life we are not where we should be? We're not what we want to be, are we? I'm certainly not. As much as I love the Lord and want to serve the Lord, I realize that I'm nothing even to this day without him. And that's the meaning that God is giving to us about God's people. They see these things. They understand them. They discern from the Spirit that without the presence and the power of God, we are nothing. And so what Jesus is teaching in this beatitude is that to hunger and to thirst for righteousness is not, okay, listen to the negative part of this, is not about a particular situation that you have. Something like this, like things aren't going so well at work. Or, my marriage is a mess. I don't like the life that I have right now. Or, I have guilt and shame over what my life has been like. Or, I was abused as a child. Now, hear me when I'm saying this, is that those things are very impacting into a life. But that's not necessarily what Jesus is talking about. Now, Jesus may use those situations and those circumstances to bring you to a place of needing him. People get counseling for all of those things, and the counseling tables are full these days of people who are seeking out good counsel to help with those kind of things. But what Jesus is really talking about here is that you see your sin so clearly that your only response is to be broken over it and to mourn from the depths of your soul and to cry out to God for his mercy and grace to help you. That's the message. So again... We're not talking about, I just want to turn over a new leaf, or I just want some things changed in my life. I wish things were better in my day-to-day circumstances. Well, we all do. But the focus of Jesus' work here in his ministry in this life when he came was to rescue us in spiritual life. And so that's always the focus. And from the health of a spiritually born-again person comes happiness as Jesus births that into our hearts. So he's saying that like the tax collector, if you want to use that as an illustration in Luke chapter 18, I love this because it just gives the passion of the heart here, the understanding of this tax collector. You remember the tax collectors were the hated people. So two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee, I'm picking up in verse 10, and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, and you can almost emphasize the drama here, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, that sounds funny to us, but we kind of play the same role, don't we? Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, notice the contrast, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In other words, he knew who the wicked one was in the room. I tell you this, Jesus said, this man went to his house justified, and that's a legal declaration, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And even after salvation, this is what I was saying a second ago, even after salvation, people like this tax collector understand that there is no good in them in and of themselves. 
that God has to be the one who is their righteousness. And they hunger for that continuously. They thirst for that kind of righteousness. In fact, they never stop hungering and thirsting over the righteousness of Christ because they are never satisfied with their spiritual lives. I'm talking about not, again, mourning to the point where you can't pick up your head and do the daily functions of your life or you never have a time of laughter and enjoy friendships. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the pleasantness of life that comes with the weight of knowing that God must be everything in your life. There was a man that I used to work with many years ago when I was still in manufacturing, and I went to him one day because I wanted to witness to him and I said to him, I said, Joe, I said, where are you in your spiritual life? And he kind of sat back in his office chair and he put his hands behind his head and he thought for a second and he said, Bruce, I'm really comfortable. I'm really comfortable. And I remember still to this day that feeling of almost like an electric shock going through my body. And I didn't say these words, I probably should have, but I remember thinking how tragic that is, because although I understood what Joe was saying, and he was a kind man, a good man in, in a worldly sense, but really that is a lack of understanding of what Jesus is talking about. We are, as God's people, are to never be comfortable where we are spiritually. Now, we should be comfortable over the fact that our names are written down in heaven, and we're going there one day, but in this life we should never be comfortable to the point where we stop pursuing the righteousness of Christ where that is our primary focus. He is our primary focus. And so I hope you understand that. So what the Lord is giving us here is a formula for true happiness. And you might ask, well, how can seeing all that in my life make me happy? How in the world is dwelling on those kind of things to make me happy? Well, to be clear, we're not just talking about seeing. We're talking about accepting. It's accepting the position that you find yourself in, like the tax collector. In other words, when we accept the truths of what Jesus is saying about us, we stop looking to the world to offer to us what makes us happy. Not one more dollar, not one more thing, not one more relationship, not one more drug, not one more beer or a glass of wine or whatever it means or whatever counseling session there may be. And again, I'm not opposed to counseling. I do a lot of counseling. I think it has its great value in lots and lots of ways, especially for sure, certainly if it's godly biblical counseling. But the point is, when we recognize our sinfulness before God and listen to Him, and I'm talking about His Word, He will give us inner joy and inner peace that will last eternally. And what's really exciting about all of this is that happiness can and does begin even right now. The Lord has come to not just give us life, but to give us life, what? More abundantly. He's come to give us the joy that we're looking for right now. But we misplace the finding of that because we often don't look to Jesus in the kind of personage that we're supposed to be in His, according to his word. We try to figure it out on our own. Now, in this life, that joy doesn't come perfectly because we have this fleshly body we're still wrapped in, right? We still deal with the problems with all of that. But we know that. So our focus is not on this life. Our focus is on the life that's to come. Listen, Jesus never once in the Gospels or anywhere else told us that we were going to have a perfectly happy, joyful, without problem life. Did he? 
If you know somewhere, point it out to me because I've never been able to find it. In fact, he said just the opposite. In this world, you will have what? Trouble. You're going to have trouble. But then he followed that with, but be of good what? Cheer. Because why? Because I himself, he has overcome the world. So in other words, he's saying, listen, you want to find your joy and your happiness in life? Look to me and trust me for where I will take you one day, not so much what I'm going to do with you here. Because Christians go through troubles here, don't we? I mean, not all of us sit back and have it fat, dumb, and happy where there are no problems. We all struggle. We all have our issues. It's not about this here and now. It's about the spiritual life. It's about the spirit of the man or woman accepting who they are outside of Christ and mourning over that, becoming like a beggar and living a meek and humble life, hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that only Christ can provide. And we will find our happiness in him. So now let's talk about becoming more righteous because there is a righteousness that we obtain through our salvation, right? The legal declaration, the justification, excuse me, is that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are legally justified. We've been forgiven in the courtroom of God. And so we are righteous people in the eyes of the Lord. But God is talking about us living a life of righteousness. So how do we become more righteous? Well, first, we are... Righteous in God's eyes, but we are still in this fleshly body and we can't stand to be that way. We want it gone, so much so we starve for more of his righteousness. At least that's what we should be doing. We're like people who are dehydrated constantly. No food, no water, but for righteousness sake. In other words, we just can't get enough and I hope that's you. I pray that for me is that we never get enough of God's righteousness. And it's not the kind of hunger and thirsting that we usually think about. In fact, the hungering and thirsting that Jesus is talking about is far different from the hungering and thirsting that you and I struggle with today. Again, I can't go a couple minutes without taking a drink of something. I struggle getting from 8 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the morning without having some meal. If I go any longer than that, I feel like I'm starving to death. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here because that's not how most of the world live. In those days that Jesus was talking from the mountain here, life was quite different. I mean, people actually still had to go out and plant the seeds and cultivate the crops and pray that there wasn't some uh, disastrous storm that would come by or some famine that would exist. And so as he's talking about hungering and thirsting, these people go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, I get it. I see what you mean. They had to work hard to get their water. Remember when the Israelites were out in the wilderness, one of the complaints they had was there wasn't enough water? I was watching a YouTube video, a couple videos actually, of some children in probably Africa. I'm not sure exactly where they were, but one of them was just such a sad thing. But daily, this was the ritual for this little guy. He couldn't have been more than 9 or 10 years old. He had his big plastic 5-gallon bucket, and he went to this dry riverbed where a river was, and just what was left was the large cracked pieces, you know what I'm talking about, where you look where water once was, and it looks like uh, the cracking of aged skin. And he would walk out into whatever was the muddiest still, no surface water, and he would take his hands as his feet started sinking, he would dig down through the cracks about this far down at least, and there would be fish under there. They were still alive. 
And he would be pulling them out. And I'm talking about fish this big. And he would be reaching in there, this little guy, putting them in his five-gallon bucket. And that was his food for the day. And his family's food for the day. Now, praise the Lord for Harris Teeter, right? I mean, let's, come on. And then there was another story about the same kind of situation. A little boy that had to walk, I think it was three to five miles. I can't remember exactly how far it was, just to get water. And he would go to a watering hole where he had to wait until the elephants were gone because they would charge him and trample him to death just to get water for his family. And this wasn't back in Jesus' day. This was YouTube. Okay? This was our day. That's thirsting. That's understanding what it's like to have to get something in a hard way. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about thirsting and hungering to the point where if you don't get it, you will surely die. You remember when Katrina came through? Some of the scenes that I remember in my mind very vividly were from the bridge right after it happened and all the people who are in the Superdome down there and the crowds of people that were on the bridge and waiting on the government to bring water and all that. That's not the point, but the point was there were people who were literally fighting over bottles of water. You know, people will kill you for a bottle of water. We think now there's water everywhere. There's water. I mean, go in the bathroom and go in the sink and go to the kitchen. We go wherever. We got to go to Walmart and there's bottles of water everywhere. But on that day, when there was no drinking water, people were willing to give their firstborn to get a drink of water. Beloved, listen, that's the kind of hungering and thirsting that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who hunger. I mean, have a true hunger for righteousness. Blessed are those who are so dehydrated spiritually that they cannot get enough water to nourish them. And I'm talking about spiritual, life-sustaining water. And tragically, we are unable to help ourselves. There's no man that can do it for himself. And so he will turn, she will turn to whatever they can turn to to satisfy the need for this hungering and thirsting. You remember the prodigal son? Let me just read this text because it's such a beautiful portrayal of what we need to see in ourselves. From Luke chapter 15, Jesus telling this story, he said of a man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me And so he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. It had gotten that bad. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a pig farm. But that's one of the stinkiest places on the human earth. I mean, it really is one of the stinkiest places. Pigs are kind of neat. They're kind of funny to watch. And they sure taste good. But boy, do they stink. I mean, they just flat out stink. And here's this kid who wants to go find his great joy in life. And he finds that when the famine comes, he doesn't have enough food to take care of himself. And so he's willing to wallow with the pigs, literally. Because no one was giving him anything, according to verse 16. But notice this, and this is the joy of it all. When he came to his senses, praise the Lord, 
He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Beloved, listen, that's the right heart. That's what Jesus is talking about. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, look at the, look at the beautiful glory of the father. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I had a friend of mine one time told me that that was the passage that brought about his salvation. Because he said he grew up in a home where his father was so opposite of that. And he said, when I was reading that for the first time, I really thought, oh man, this kid's going to get it. Because that's what he had done. That's what had happened to him over the years. And he says he was just so blown away by verse 21, verse 20 and 21, that he right then said, that's the God that I want. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven, and I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. But the father said, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. Folks, listen. The prodigal son was blind to the point where he saw his sin. He recognized his sin. He saw his rebellion. He saw his pride and the way he wanted life to be. To have the things of the world. That's what he wanted. To go out and find the things of the world in the, own ha- in the happiness that he thought he was going to find. But when he finally realized the total depravity that it had, and he completely, his complete inability to find peace was when he then came to his father. And that's where we have to be. We have to come to that place. Who, by the way, will welcome us with open arms. What a beautiful truth. The father longs for his people to say, Let me break your heart so that you will see the joy and the glory that I can provide for you. For the happiness that I can provide for you. And we understand the prodigal son's story. I won't go into it. But you know the older son was pretty miffed about all this. He didn't like the way that this son was being treated. And the Lord said to him, Son, listen, don't you already have all the glorious truths of my home? Don't you have all of my possessions already given to you? And the message there, of course, is about salvation. And we should be rejoicing over those who are finally seeing their sin. Not saying, well, that wicked fellow over there did me wrong and I hope he just burns in hell. That should never be the heart of a true believer. But what should be the heart of the true believer is that we long for God's righteousness to be placed into the heart of every soul. That's why we talk so much about reaching our community. Because there are people that are dying in this condition that need the truth of the gospel. They need to hear this so that they too will be rescued. But often our emotions and our feelings want to push away, especially those people that have been harmful to us over the years. And we've struggled with. That was the older brother's problem. He didn't want his younger brother a part of the dad's family anymore. But we need to have the heart that we're so broken over ourselves and our own sin that we look to God to make the difference. What made the difference in the son was that he had a true heart change. There was a serious heart change that was done. He saw how destitute he was. And he mourned over it. And he let go of his pride and returned to his father, which is where he found the glory. And by the way, the story of searching for happiness doesn't have to be an extreme situation like this either. Not all of us are going to have to go out and eat the pods out of the field with pigs. 
But I will tell you this, is that we should see ourselves spiritually like that. In the midst of all the things that we have in this world, we should first and foremost hate the lives that we're living spiritually I'm talking about so that we see the glory of Christ. Happiness is found only in God. Now there's a warning in all of this too because it's painful. I'm sure it was quite painful for the prodigal son to deny himself and to come to his senses and we have to die to ourselves. You remember the picture I showed about the tabernacle? We don't want to run around the brazen altar because it's got to be there that we first come to the Lord. We've got to die to ourselves. And not just say, Lord, we want the riches of the kingdom. We don't want to have to leave anything ourselves behind. But it doesn't work that way. We've got to die to ourselves and face our sinfulness and give up our pride so that God can take control. One commentator wrote this. The people in God's kingdom, if we're talking about who they are, are people who seek righteousness. Listen, they seek righteousness. That's what they want. They're not looking for prosperity. They're not looking for material prosperity. They're not looking for healings. They're not looking for wealth. They're not looking for success. They're not looking for health. They're not looking to have their marriage fixed. They're not looking to have a happier environment, a better job. They're not asking God to just tweak their life a little bit and fix up some of the things they don't like. There is a desperation in their lives, but it has nothing to do with those temporal matters. What they're desperate about... What they're hungry and thirsty for is far beyond anything this world has to provide. They want righteousness. As much as a starving man who fears death wants food and a thirsty man who fears death wants water, desperation is the key idea. Desperation is the point that Jesus is making. And when a man recognizes these truths, he simply cannot get enough of Jesus and his righteousness because Jesus has become the most precious commodity in his life or in her life. And so he or she will spend their whole life looking to Jesus, desiring his righteousness to remove their sins. Again, like a starving man who may have a bountiful amount of food around him once his belly is full will still hide food on his body for fear of of what it means to starve again. That's how a starving man or woman actually lives, is they'll save for themselves things just in case they feel the hunger pain again. And I'll say that's again what a spiritual man or woman really looks like. A true person of the kingdom is a person that so remembers the day that they were starving for the righteousness of Christ that they cannot and will not ever let that escape their memory. And so it may be 20, 30, 40 years from the day of their salvation, they still remember how hungry and thirsty they were on that day. And they never let it go. And that's their motive. That's their motivation for continuing on with Christ is the hungering and thirsting that they once remembered and they cannot get enough of the grace and the glory of God because they know what He's done for them. So ask yourself, what do I really hunger for in this life? What is my appetite really wanting? What is the compelling desire of your heart? I mean, what do you really want? What is it that you really want? When it comes down to it, what is the motivation of your life? Those are great questions. Moses had one passion. 
Show me your glory, Lord. Moses was a man who literally spoke to God face to face, we're told. To the point where the glory of God shone on Moses' face, where he had to cover his face so that people wouldn't be overwhelmed by the glory of God coming through Moses. But Moses had one passion, even in the midst of all that, Lord, show me more of your glory. You see, that's God's people. David had one passion. King of Israel, man who had everything at his disposal. In Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. Listen, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What was David saying? I have everything. I'm the king. At the snap of my fingers, I can have everything that I want, but that's not my heart. My heart is, I cannot get enough of you. I hunger and I thirst for you. Paul had one passion, Philippians 3, 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted for loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, though, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I've given up everything for Jesus. And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Did you hear what he's saying? Just yesterday I had a visit from a very kind man and, a, and his young son. I was out doing some work in the yard and he came. He was Jehovah's Witness. He wanted to share with me about the good things of the Bible. And I tell you, you know what was joyful for me? It was not because I wanted to beat him down. But it was joyful to me to know that I knew more of what the truth was than he did. Not because I'm great, not because I'm something special, but because God, as he has to each of us in the hearing of his word, reveals truth to us so that we can be satisfied in knowing the truth and not having to listen to this man, again, who was a very kind man. And we had a great conversation in a lot of ways and about different things. But I was the one who began witnessing to him. I didn't plan on that. I was just burning some trash at the fire. And God brought him down my driveway. I didn't even know what he was there for. But what a joy it was in my heart to be able to open up the truths in my mind that God has implanted there to be able to share the truth with him. The passion of our hearts is not, beloved, for what we can get in this world or have in this world or the hope of happiness in this world. It all comes through Jesus. And to search for it anywhere else will leave you dead and dying. And it's not until, as the writer said a second ago, that we come to the desperation of a starving, dehydrated person that we really appreciate the righteousness of God. Those are the people, listen, those are the people who become Christians. Jesus is saying to those people seated around him, listen, you want to know who make up my kingdom? These are the people. This is what you will find in heaven. These are the personalities. These are the hearts of those. This is the way they will interact with one another. This is my kingdom. And you will not be there if we took the negative approach unless you become like one of them. 
That's what he's saying. That's my kingdom. Look at the tax collector again. Just go back to him. Beautifully told there. Standing some distance away. Unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven. You see that physical picture there in your mind as this man sees his own brokenness before the Lord, his own inability to be righteous in many ways. Now, he was a wealthy man. The tax collectors were the wealthiest of the wealthiest. And he was willing to cast himself before the Lord, unwilling even to look up to the heavens because he saw himself saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. This becomes a very profound truth as we think through this for just a minute. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went away justified. Sadly, so many people just want to give Jesus a try. I'll try it. I'll see what it's all about. They come and go in and out of the church, never really finding what they're looking for. Why? Because they're not desperate enough. They're not desperate enough. Those who find Christ find him through desperation. Because there is nothing left. There's no one left but Jesus. That's where he wants us. Because anything beyond that will be fighting against our pride and our rebellion. The tax collector understood that there was nothing left. It had to be God. And I dare say, beloved, that the church is filled today with many people who are just trying Jesus but are not desperate for Jesus. Or they may be desperate for a lot of things. Like I said earlier, they may be desperate to fix their marriage. They may be desperate for a better job or the changing of their children, getting rid of some health issue or some legitimate need they have. But the desperation for the righteousness of the soul is not the reason, is is the only reason rather to be looking for Jesus. And to come to be a part of God's family. If you're coming to be a part of the church for any other reason but this desperation for Jesus, you've come for the wrong reason. Now, it may be that the Lord has led you through these means and gotten your attention through these means. And he often will do that, allow these things. But his real focus is like a funnel. He will allow these life things to occur to channel us to the point where we are so broken that he is the only one that remains in our view. If you think of this beatitude like this, there is an inner need that's far greater than the human heart can ever provide. A need that only can come through total depravity. And again, unfortunately, many people try to fix their inner need by treating the symptoms. You know, treating a symptom for cancer would be something like you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you've got terminal cancer. And you say, well, just give me a shot to get rid of the pain. And you walk out of there feeling so much better. But the problem is what? The cancer still remains, right? And Jesus is not a shot in the arm. Jesus is not one just to take the pain away. Jesus wants to deal with the real issue. The heart needs to be converted. Unfortunately, there are very few genuine conversions today. Because again, people have bought the lie that the world will make you happy and Jesus is like the icing on the cake. And that's not the truth. In fact, churches have even listened to this. 
Churches have bought the idea that if I just preach a message that will help touch the need that everybody has, that they're dealing with that week, that they'll keep coming back. Well, sure they will. Because if I've got the medicine that I can give to you to fix that need for the week, then guess what's got to happen next week? You've got to come back and get the fix. Right? It's like a drug addict. But Jesus is saying, here, listen, I'm not going to just give you the fix for the week. I'm going to give you the fix for eternity. Where your heart is free forever. And I'll help you along the way. I'll make the way possible. And sadly, that's what's happening. If you truly want happiness, here's the answer. You must see your total depravity. If Jesus is going to give you the happiness that you're looking for. You must come broken over your sin. Desperately looking for his righteousness. Where you see yourself totally bankrupt. Totally bankrupt. And you grieve over it and you cry out like the tax collector, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. And let's just be real practical here. If you want to fix your marriage, you want Jesus to do something about your marriage, what he is saying to each of us, to those of us who are married, is to look at your heart, your heart, not your spouse's heart. Get your eyes off your spouse's heart and look at your heart and be broken over your sin and be broken over how you are in the relationship. And Jesus will come alongside and help us. Why? Because Not because we're going to be able to do something magical to fix our spouse, but because we'll be looking to Jesus to fix me. And through that, he will fix the relationship in his own way, in his own time. If we want a better home life, stop looking at the members of the family and look at the heart of yourself and make sure it's where the Lord wants you to be. And when you do that, you may not be able to convince your family of all that they need to be and all that they should be, but you'll trust Jesus with the plan to take care of your family. All of a sudden, you'll back up and you'll be able to say, listen, my hope is in Christ. It's really up to him what he does with this. But again, too often we just get caught up in trying to fix up others. And that's where the Matthew 7, we'll get to this eventually, where Jesus says, hey, why are you trying to pull the log out of your neighbor's eye? when you need to be focusing on the thing that's in your own eye. You see how he's tying it all together? So hungering and thirsting for righteousness is all about looking at the heart. That's the place to start. As Jesus sat on the mountain and he was preaching to those people, I think we could substitute his words for that statement. I want you to look at your heart. Look at your heart. Not your neighbor's heart. Your heart. And determine where you are there. And when you see your desperate need for righteousness, come to me. And I will in no way cast you out. I will meet you where you are. And I will provide what you need. I will give you the energy and the stamina to be what I want you to be. And that's where happiness begins because it will all start with your salvation. You know, the people who are truly born again, truly born again, understand these things. And they're the happiest people in the world. They may not be happy with the circumstances of their life, but they don't look to those things. They look to Christ and say, For thy will, Lord, your will be done. The psalmist said, Psalm 34, They who seek the Lord shall not, want, shall not be in want of any good thing. How about that? 
Psalm 107, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Jeremiah 31, my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will what? Not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You'll never hunger, and you'll never thirst. So what do you get from being spiritually destitute? Satisfaction. Know what Jesus said? Look at verse 6. Happy are the hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What? They will be satisfied. You know what the Lord is promising? You're going to walk away full. You'll come away from my table full. Not because life is perfect, but because you know me and you will trust me. And by the way, as I said earlier, that righteousness and that hungering creates a greater hunger. It's like when you have a little bit of sugar, you want a little bit more sugar. Amen? Right? That glorious thing called sugar. Everybody agree with me? Right? You just want more of it or like sleep. You know, have you ever been deprived of sleep and you get a little bit of sleep and you start sleeping more and you're like, oh, I just want to sleep more? It's like when you taste the righteousness of Christ, you just want more and more of Christ's righteousness? Well, let's close with this, taking the hunger and thirst examination. Ask yourself just a few more questions because this will help you to assess where you are. Number one, am I dissatisfied with myself spiritually? Am I dissatisfied with myself spiritually? Am I dissatisfied with myself spiritually? In other words, do you constantly feel like you have a long way to go? Like you kind of never fully measure up? Or are you more concerned with upsetting Christ than you are with your spouse? You're more, more concerned about what Jesus thinks about your life than your husband or your wife or your neighbor, your boss, or your brother, or your sister. Even the church, your friends. It's a good indication that you're hungering and thirsting. Here's a second one. Am I satisfied with the external things of life? Am I satisfied with the external things of life? If you're finding yourself less and less fulfilled with the things that this life can offer you, you're growing in righteousness. It may not feel like it, but that's what the Lord is doing. He's pushing away the things of this world because you know in your heart that the only satisfaction is being more righteous. And so you're less satisfied with the things of this world, the external things of this world, because becoming like Christ is your primary focus. If you're still looking for this life to fulfill you, and all that it gives, you're looking in the wrong direction. Number three, are you starving for the Word of God? Are you starving for the Word of God? That's a tough question, isn't it? If you take at face value everything that the Lord has given to us today, I dare say we fall short in these ways. But what we're talking about here is that you just can't get enough of the Lord. I mean, it's like the more righteousness you feel, the more you just say, Lord, put more on the table, put more on the table, put more on the table. I just can't get away from your table. I just can't get away from you. 
You hear a sermon and you say, I just want to listen to another one. I just want to read this. I read this in the text and I just want to read more. I just want to be with God. Do you fill up when you listen to his word, when you read it? Do you love to hear the testimonies of changed lives? The things of God. Do you want more and more knowledge of his word? Do you just want to know Jesus more? How about what Job said? I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. You see, that's the purpose of fasting. God doesn't need us to fast for him to do something. The purpose of fasting is to follow in line with something like what Job said, is that we push away the necessities of this life so that we're focusing on God. Job said, I am so hungry for the words of God that I'd rather stay away from food if I had to choose between the two. The psalmist in 119 says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, the last time I tasted honey, except for the bees that had the little sign up that said that they were doing dietetic honey, was very sweet. I'm making a joke there. So there's just no bees that are doing that, okay? Just, just so you know. But you know what honey's like, right? The psalmist says, your words, Lord, your words. Listen, your words are sweeter than honey to my soul. Do you see the heart? Do you see the heart of righteousness? The difference will be in the dividing of these truths where the heart says, eh, Give me a candy bar. You know, most people today consider themselves to be true followers of God and really faithful to the Lord. This is true according to statistics, at least in our country, if they come to church at least once a month. Now, let's put it in food context. If you ate once a month, we'd have to come looking for you, right? If you drank fluids once a month, you wouldn't last. What does it say in the medical world? It's like two days or something like that without drinking. Isn't it strange how we just miss that spiritually? All right, you're getting the point. Number four, do you place conditions on God? Do you place conditions on God? A starving man will take whatever's given to him, right? I'm talking about a truly hungry person. The young son, the prodigal son, evidently was so hungry that he didn't go to anybody looking for food. He saw the food being mashed down in the mud by the pigs. And he says, man, it looks good. They have it better than I do. I'll eat what they have. A thirsty man will give him whatever is, will drink whatever is given to him. And he'll rejoice over what's been provided. Thank you, Lord, for what you've provided. Solomon summed it up well in Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This is all vanity. You skip down to verse 15. And he had come, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. 
He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Now skip to verse 20. For he will not offer, often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What is Solomon saying? Solomon had everything beyond even what King David had. The richest of the richest throughout the universe up and even to this time, Solomon had it all. And he came to the conclusion that God and his ability to provide contentedness and happiness is the only source of where true happiness will come from. Nothing else. The psalmist says in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before you? O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 119.40 Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Revive me through your righteousness. Listen, beloved. If you, are, you and I are preoccupied with anything in this life other than finding and searching and living the righteousness of Christ, we're on the wrong road. We're on the wrong path. We are being deceived into following the joys of this life. But when we do follow Christ and we live for Him and we want more of His righteousness, we are on the path to the eternal kingdom. We're on the right path. Let's make sure we are. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, what simple words came from your mouth on that mountain in that day many, many thousands of years ago. But Lord, what food they are for our souls. Thank you, Lord, that in such simple truth you teach so profoundly. Thank you, Lord, that you are the author and the finisher of life. Thank you that you are the righteous one. Lord, would it be that in our presence even today that the hearts of our church would come to the place of complete and total brokenness before you? Lord, that we may see ourselves destitute spiritually, morally bankrupt. Lord, would it be that each of us would mourn as the tax collector mourned in front of you? that on a daily basis we wake up every morning and we just praise your holy name for the breath of life and for your righteousness that gives us the joy and the privilege of standing in your presence. Lord, as we close our thoughts today and we come to your communion table, we come taking your food, your body that was given for us. We come drinking your blood figuratively as we take part in the juice knowing that it was your blood that was shed for us, that your righteousness would pay the price of our sin. And so we are willingly partaking of your table, acknowledging to you as a church that you are the righteous one, and we desperately need your righteousness continually. 
Thank you, Lord, that you don't ask us to be saved over and over and over and over again. But you ask us to come once to the foot of your cross. But that we live our lives there, always ready to serve you, looking to you for all things. Thank you, Lord. Now plant these truths deep in our hearts as we partake of this divine moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers.